John Mysick is the opinion editor at Penn Live Patriot News in Harrisburg. He has spent the last two decades covering Pennsylvania state government. Recently, the two of us met for coffee. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. I am at uh, Little Amps uh, in downtown Harrisburg. Joining me is a uh, longtime friend, uh, John Mysick, who is uh, the opinion editor at Penn Live Patriot News in Harrisburg. Uh, John, thanks for coming on. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Thanks. John, um, of course, I knew you when you were, I think the first time we met was uh, you were a reporter. Yes. Uh, Capitol reporter at the Allentown yeah, I was, Morning Call. I was thinking Call. about yeah. that for the, for the morning call. It must yeah. have been what? O- 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 two, o- three, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah, it's yes. been a long time. It's been a long time, um, but uh, you've you've been around uh, for quite a while. God, uh, yeah, I hate <laughs> when people remind me of that. Like Ter- Terry Madonna pulls it. I mean, like, oh, John, you've been covering this for a long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I know, I know, I know. Yeah, you're it's, now like the old guy that uh, you know I'm, we always used to look at. I know. I, I'm like I'm the guy that I used to think was so so old. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you, it, I thought about it. It's actually going to be um, this year, Matt. Uh, Oh, 19 is 20 years covering Pennsylvania politics. For me. Wow. Wow. It's, it's crazy to think about. Yeah, it is. Um, but you're not from Pennsylvania. No. Uh, you actually uh, grew up. I must up, have done uh, something terribly, terribly <laughs> wrong. <laughs> but your, your penance. Uh, but you yes. haven't left. You've, I'm sure you've had opportunities to leave. But uh, I know you're from uh, Connecticut. That yes, was That correct. was home. Uh, before we get into, you know, the politics and the punditry, uh, uh, looking ahead to yeah. the new year. Uh, tell me about growing up, little Johnny Mysick uh, uh, in Connecticut. Little Johnny, no one ever called me Johnny for one. I can tell you that. Um, no, you know, I mean, it was cool. So I grew up in Litchfield County in Connecticut, which is the far northwestern corner of the state, sort of where Massachusetts and New York and Connecticut all intersect. The the Berkshire foothills. Okay. Um, my father, who was also called John, um, owned a restaurant there for a number of years, and I kind of grew up in my father's restaurant. You know, like. I have memories of washing dishes when I was seven years old and then moving to do prep work and working on the line and waiting on tables and tending bar, the, the, the whole thing. It was a really good, I got to tell you, it was a really, people say, well, you've probably never done a hard day's work in your yeah. life. I'll tell you what, there's nothing, there is nothing like restaurant work to, uh, to get your hands dirty and to, uh, and, and, to and make the, you want to go to school and, make and you get an education, to, Exactly right. right. Well, you know, it was, and it was, it was really noble work. My father worked really, really hard. So he taught me that value, you know, from a very early age because when you I mean as you know you've got clients when you run your own business if you're really running your own business you're there all the time yeah. you know the business and runs you sometimes so, I mean he was closed Easter and Christmas Day uh-huh. my two most vivid, vivid memories and he came to me when I was about 18 years old and get ready to start my freshman year in college and said look go to school for four years I'll hang on to the keys and when you're done you know the place is yours uh-huh and it's just kind of like, yeah, you know what? All the same to you, I think I'm going to go to college. Um, and I've always wondered, like, what would have happened if I'd taken that left turn? Mm, mm. Um, would I be off muttering wisdom to myself over some stove someplace? And when the news business gets real tenuous, I keep thinking to myself, a bistro. A bistro would be great. People always got to eat. I'll always have a job. It'll be fantastic. Um, but you'd, but def- you'd be offending people there, too. No, uh, right? it's, so- it's a gift. It's a gift. <laughs> You can't make the customers always right, even yeah. when they're not. Um, so, so you grew up in the restaurant business, and you know, I'd always been, I'd always had sort of literary inclinations, and um, I went to this really tweedy prep school mm. in Connecticut. And if you've ever seen the movie Dead Poets Society with oh, Robin yeah. Williams, um, we were my buddies and I, who were all sort of writers and artists and that kind of thing, were blessed enough to have a teacher who was exactly like 
the Robin Williams character, pressing mm. books into our hands and exposing us to art and that kind of stuff and really ushering us down the road to the people we were going to become. And I've always been, um, you were a teacher, so you, I mean, you know the, the influence that a great teacher you can bet. have. I've always been you immensely bet. grateful for that. Um, so I got the writing bug there. And also that year, um, I took an American presidency course. It was from FDR up until, at that point, Ronald Reagan, showing my age mm -hmm. yet again, because it's 1987. <laughs> um, and he gave, this guy, David Lloyd, gave me a copy of, and our first assigned reading was Tip O'Neill's memoir, mm. A Man of the House, that he wrote with Robert Novak. And, you know, the book reads like you would imagine O'Neill to be. Just this fantastic Irish storyteller, tremendous raconteur, coming of age in New Deal Boston under Mayor James Michael Curley, uh, working with Sam Rayburn, working with Kennedy, LBJ, all the titanic figures of, of mid-20th century and late-20th century politics. And... You know, that really gave me the bug. Mm -hmm. And you and I diverge quite wildly politically, but it was, it was that that kind of sent me down the road to where I ended up ideologically on the sort of center-left side of the spectrum and helped to form my beliefs um, about government. So that, 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 was, that was that. Was that and, and what about your family? Was, you, was your dad my, uh, politically you know, engaged no, or I mean, active you know, at, all, at all? I mean, okay. my, my parents were Kennedy Democrats, okay. you know, um, who became Fox News conservatives as they moved into their dotage. <laughs> I think it's the, the natural arc. Um, but well, we become wiser. I, I, well, you know. some of us do. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I went off to college, a little, uh, a little liberal arts school in uh, Westchester County, New York, called Manhattanville College. About okay. an hour out of the city. Um, in fact, ironically enough, a place where some of the Kennedy women had gone as undergraduates. In fact, Maria Shriver ended up being um, our graduation speaker in 1992. Huh. Um, thought originally I was going to be a political science major. Decided, I got, then took one con law course, and that finished me. And I was like, you know what, no, there's going to be an easier way to do this. Um, and became, you know, an English lit and writing major. Um, but still uh, attuned to politics oh, yeah, and very yeah, interested in politics. I mean, never politics. lost that kind of finely attuned sense of social outrage, okay. I guess. Um, you know, I, I figured at that point, though, if you listened to enough YouTube records, you could somehow change the world. Um, right. I, matu I matured some <laughs> since then. Some, some, some yeah, yeah. Just a bit. Um, you know, became, uh, got involved with the college newspaper, mm -hmm. um, did a couple of years as its editor-in-chief, um, interned in broadcast news in my home state of Connecticut, two stations in Hartford. But through it all, I sort of harbored the idea that I would go to grad school, get a master's degree, get a PhD, and be go off me some Tweety lit professor someplace. Okay. And then my senior year, I took something like 21 credits my final semester senior year. And had all of my fool that I am had all of my finals like in one day. <laughs> so when I finally got done at 11:30 at night, my brain was fried, mm -hmm. and I could not countenance the idea of another four, six, whatever years of school. Um, it, made, it sort of made the sort of a rash and impulsive decision. Well, I've always been. I've, I, I want to write. Mm -hmm. I've got this sort of social justice muscle. Where do I go? Journalism. So, you know, that's, I, that's, I graduated and spent a couple of months looking for a job and uh, worked in a bookstore, waited on tables in a deli because it was 92 and the economy was, it was the Bush 41 recession, so things weren't real great. And I um, ended up getting a job at my hometown daily, uh, this paper called The Register Citizen in Torrington, Connecticut in uh, 1993 and haven't looked back since. Um, 
for but so, but so, for, but for a brief interregnum where I went to grad school at Northwestern in '96-'97. Uh, so you went? Did you go out to Chicago? Yes. Yeah, so I, mean, so, I, so, yeah. I went, so this this is a great this is yeah. a great story and a great program. So Northwestern, the grad school there, runs a wire service that services the suburban dailies in Chicago. And at that point, they only had a campus in D.C. that also had client papers across the country. So I did about six months in Chicago, um, covering Chicago City Council and U.S. District Courts mm. as a 26-year-old kid, which was 26, yeah, 26 going on 27, which was phenomenal. Mm. Um, Chicago is a great news town. It's a wonderful town for food and for culture. It's the coldest place on the face of the earth. Yes. Um, on my birthday in June, I actually saw my breath on my way to work in the morning. But, um, <laughs> you know, I loved it. I had a blast. And then went to D.C. and um, covered a chunk of the North Carolina congressional delegation for the um, Observer Times in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And I, I used to joke that my beat there was that if you could shoot it, smoke it, or eat it, then <laughs> I wrote about it. Because Fayetteville is the home of Fort Bragg. The hog industry is huge in Clinton County, and so too was tobacco at that point in 97. So I was writing about crop insurance subsidies. I was writing about defense appropriations bills, going to the Pentagon for briefings and that kind of stuff. I mean, really heady stuff for a 27-year-old sure. kid to do. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so you uh, end up being a reporter for yes. a long time, but you go into this, it sounds like, kind of more an ideological uh, so you've almost kind of f come full circle now as the opinion. I, I, I mean, I, you don't have to hide that. No, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's too, I mean, it's too strong. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't go into it like I'm going to change the world. I yeah. mean, it was a way that I could write and get a paycheck. Yeah. But I mean, I think a lot of us who go into journalism go into it with good intentions. We want to make our own little corner of the universe a better place in some way. Mm -hmm. We want to hold power accountable. We want to tell good stories. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm any different from any journalist there. I mean, I think the real awakening was when I came up here, hmm. you know, in 99. And, you know, you and I, we don't agree on a lot of stuff, but some of the stuff that we do agree on is that government often exceeds its mandates. That, right, right. Um, Power corrupts. Pu and the, power, <laughs> the public officials occasionally need to be brought to heel. And... You know, covering, covering Pennsylvania politics, God knows, has been a heck of a trip. So, so tell me, how, how did you end up coming to Harrisburg? I mean, what was the opportunity that uh, ultimately brought you to make Pennsylvania home for it's, the last two decades It was now? the most guy thing in the entire world. <laughs> okay. The young, la girl, the young okay, lady yeah. seemed like a good idea at the time, <laughs> is what I normally tell people. Um, I was dating this young lady. She moved up here. Um, she, I followed her. Uh -huh. That relationship is, I hope she's happy and has a billion kids or whatever. Um, but you found another. Yes, yes. I was lucky enough there, <laughs> who has put up with me for yeah. these many years. Um, and we have a 13-year-old daughter now who is mm -hmm. the absolute center of my existence. But, you know, I mean, I came up here in 99, and I was joking about this with somebody not long ago. That I sat down at my desk in the Capitol Newsroom when I was 29. I looked up, and I was 42 <laughs> and had absolutely no idea where the time had gone. But, you know, I've been lucky enough to cover a lot of great stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to well, say that, that, that someone who, of course, uh, has a very um, uh, uh, ideological perspective, of course, the things um, that you were always fair to me as a reporter. And <laughs> I never had any quibbles with the quotes, you know, anything like that. Um, well, so I, mean, that, I, so that I means, appreciated that. Means that. I was yeah. doing my job. Oh, yeah, I exactly. Mean, you know, it, it's... So the, you're you're, to, you're you're left hard left wing turn, John, oh, as God's opinion editor. Hard left -wing <laughs> um, no, I'm turn. saying you did it. You 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 were very fair as a reporter, which is I think what we expect. That uh, the, hey, well, your uh, you know your perspective should not be coming through the stories when you're no no. News. I mean not yeah. at all. I mean if you're doing look, everyone 
there's no such thing as like being. I was trying to play a compliment. I appreciate that. I mean, there's no, you and I both know that like pure objectivity is for the realm of philosophers. Sure, right. I mean, we all bring our our, our perceptions, yeah. our experiences, our individual biases to the table. But the, the parallel I used to like to draw with people is that it's like being a doctor who would faint at the sight of blood. You just you learn to you just lock that stuff in a box, mm-hmm. and to the extent that it's possible, you just put your head down and you do your, you know you do the job mm-hmm. and that is really the you know that's a very I'm glad you said that because it means I was doing something mm-hmm. right apparently because I really did try to do that really hard when I was a reporter yeah because uh, I I wouldn't have pegged you as the left winger you are today which I, and again yeah, we can say we ra- ra- raise yeah. raise a warning would disagree heartily <laughs> with you uh, on that and so with some other people in, um, in Republican campaigns I'm sure no and that's a good thing right <laughs> uh, it, it's I, I think it's something that one of your colleagues John Bear once said that uh, he's an equal opportunity offender I think I think you are as well you got uh, yes. <laughs> Which and of course I think your mail probably uh, reflects that uh, your the love letters quote unquote it, it, love letters. You know, it, it is funny though. I get letters from from people every once in a while like, oh, Mysick, he's this big Republican, he's conservative. I'm like, have you met me? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it I mean it, do, it it does mean that we're doing the it does mean that we're doing yeah. the job. I mean, well, it, I, I do. You know, I have I, I've gotten in trouble with the Wolf administration for getting under their skin. You know, I've got I've upset Republicans in this position for getting under their skin. I. I, I do I skew center left? I I cop to it, but you know I do try to call balls and strikes uh, as applicable. Well, uh, let's let's talk about the state of journalism, your profession for many years. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, we see it being attacked um, certainly from the top. Uh, being yeah. the, the the president um, has certainly put uh, your profession in the crosshairs. Literally. Um, yeah. Well, and do you think that? Uh, oh, I don't know about literal. I mean, obviously. <laughs> There are dead journalists. Yeah, no, fair so, enough. Literally. Yeah. Fair, well, uh, whether it's the president's fault, I guess that's I'm not, part I'm not, of the. I'm not uh, drawing yeah, any inference, yeah. but I'm saying there there are people who've been urged to act. Oh, sure, no, and I think that uh, this is where you've got uh, radicals all around. Of course, that uh, unfortunately, however, that gets fostered, uh, and I think you know social media is certainly one of those realms that I'm. I mean, I personally, I've I've withdrawn from it quite significantly just yeah. because it's. I don't see it being real productive. Um, but what is your? Uh, do you think that uh, journalism is in a crisis in terms of the trust that that people put in the news that's being reported? Um, you know, versus a lot of uh, opinion. Uh, you know, pieces. I mean, this, there's so there. God, there's so much to unpack. Yeah, there. right. Um, so let's start with the baseline. If you look at polling numbers, mm-hmm. the poll numbers for journalists are not. Great. Um, you know, I think Congress is less trusted than us, and that's about it. <laughs> it's not um, saying a whole lot, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's really a shame, though, because yeah. for the reasons I just outlined to you, I mean, the men and women I know who are day-to-day journalists are out there working really, really hard to bring people the news, to bring them, to bring them the stories. Um, and by and large, they're beyond reproach. The work they do is beyond reproach. Um, what makes it difficult, quite frankly, is that when you have somebody at the top, in this case the president, telling his, his, telling his cadre of followers that we, we're the, quote, fake news, that we're the enemy of the people, that we're liars, it is tremendously destabilizing. You know, but was that, did that, I mean, I, I think that that pre-exists no, I mean, th- in it many is, ways. It is, but it, it is something that's been happening for a long time. I mean, you look at the rise of cable news you look at the rise yeah. of the 24 7 
news cycle, and I, I was talking on a panel about this at Shippensburg, I think, not long ago. When we, when you, when you turn on cable news and you have panels, when you have panel discussions where you have a beat reporter, you have an analyst, you have some former political person, and then some sort of professional political person, like an ex lobbyist or whatever all offering perspective and all offering analysis at the same time, that the lines between objective reporting yeah. and analysis and opinion get blurred, and so much so that people can't distinguish between, you know, who's between who's saying what. So there, I, will, I, will, I will take some ownership. I mean, there is some fault there. Um, there is some fault there mm-hmm. as well. I mean, that, that makes things difficult. I mean, there's some Pew data, Pew data out, like, the other week. That's that most people can't distinguish between statements of opinion and statements of fact, right, right. which is sh- shocking on yeah. its face. But when you lay it alongside the fact, well, and on Fox News, on MSNBC, on CNN, on CNBC, wherever yeah, yeah. you see these kinds of because they have to fill this air somehow, right. you understand how that happens. And again, it's unfortunate because there are reporters are out there who are putting well, themselves in, putting themselves in harm's yeah. way, quite frankly. And it, and it's so important, I think, for the health of a republic, uh, of a you know a country, from an accountability standpoint. Yes. From you know information, so decision making is done well. So to me, this is one of those things that we have to figure out yeah. how you know we can't just. Um, uh, I I think it would it would be really harmful um, for us to just uh, you know. Um, not trust anything that we see well, out I mean, there unless it's somebody that, you know, we agree with their opinion on. I mean, on. That's, that's the thing. There's yeah. a guy named Tom Nichols who's a professor at the Army War College. He's a former staffer to John Hines from years ago. Last year he wrote this book called The Death of Expertise, which is one of my favorite books of the last, last couple of years outside of John Meacham's um, uh, book from this summer. Um, but he argues that... that now that everybody is armed, sort of with their own information, yeah. But you know, one hand used to say you can you can you can have your own opinion, but you can't have your own set of facts. Yeah. Well, people have their own set of facts now. Yeah. So we've lost sort of that like that. And they're absolutely certain about those facts right. that aren't actually true. That aren't actually true. <laughs> but people come to the table and they'll say, "No, you're wrong. Here are my facts." Mm-hmm. You know, and but and it used to be that we had a commonly agreed to right. set of assumptions, and then our analyses about those commonly agreed to assumptions would disagree. Now we're not even at that point, and it makes it a hell of a lot harder to get to common ground, to get to yes, to get to agreement on anything, or even to even to write journalism, because people will come back at you well with, Hillary Clinton ran a pedophile ring out of a pizza joint in D.C., and you're like, yeah. no, yeah. no, she didn't. <laughs> not true, not, not true. But, it's, it, but that stuff like sort of leaks in, and you know, Nichols writes that people don't people are not only ignorant, they don't care and they're proud of what they don't know. Yeah. And that's and that's damaging and they don't trust the opinions of experts or those you know, those sort of establishment folks we traditionally went to to say, Water is wet, the sky yeah. is blue and we had those you know, it's it sort of trickles down the line. Yeah, and it's uh, where I, th- this past summer um, we went away for a week, uh, yeah. our family on vacation. And um, what I did is I said, you know what? I'm turning off everything. I'm not going oh, to bless. get on God Facebook or Twitter. And honestly, coming back, John, I have, I've left all the notifications off. I might jump in every once in a while. Uh, but then I'm reminded why I've gotten out yeah. and why 
you know what? Nothing really productive is happening there. I can, you know, and to me, and you wrote something and I, I wrote the quote down because I thought it was exactly right, at least where I'm at. said that you wrote the corrosive effect that social media has had on our shared dialogue, essentially that this has been horrible. I mean, it is corrosive. Did I, really, and, I, I was yeah. usually articulate. I must yeah. have been having a good day. <laughs> well, uh, but... No, but I, I think, it, I mean, I think you're right. I mean... The, getting into an argument on Ugh. Twitter, you might as well put your head through a plate glass window. Um, and, I'm, and I say that from all sides, John. No, so no, it's like I, the no, people I, that I've got friends on Facebook, I go, oh, my goodness. I, one, I don't have hours to try to disabuse you of your erroneous yeah. statements of fact, right? I will say this, though. So today, today it's Friday um, in December, because I think this is an air until after New Year's. Yeah. But I'd, I'd written a column about this proposed... Chick-fil-A that's supposed to be going in in Camp Hill and one of the business, busiest intersections on the face of the earth that 32nd street in the bypass there and it actually sparked a really intelligent really reasoned discussion that went on all day about the values of civic engagement about the values of local journalism and it was such a, it was such a blast of fresh air because hmm. most of the time when you get sucked into some debate on Twitter it's I know you are but what am I so, I mean, I still think, you know, this kind of reaffirmed my faith a little bit. Like, there might still be some space <laughs> in there for people of goodwill to debate and, and disagree. But, I mean, yeah, by and large, it's, it's, it can be a street fight. And there's days when i got to walk away. Yeah. Um, you know, the comment section on, on Penline. Oh, my like, goodness. Like, commenters yeah. demanding, well, Mysic, where are you? Why aren't you here? I'm like, because I have, like, a job <laughs> and a life. And there's, yeah. like, sun. I have to go outside. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, God bless our commenters, but I don't know how they have the time to sit on their computers all day long and, and yell at each other. Well, so uh, but you, it pays the bills. Yeah, yeah, you talked about a local issue, um, and I think that that's what's uh, you know one of the things that we're seeing with a decline in in the media, um, and and I'm sure you've you've seen it I, at I, Patriot I, I, News. I would urge you to use the yeah. word decline. It's a, okay. It's a change. Well, I mean it the is, coverage it's, it's, of it's, local it's, issues. It's, yeah. it's a change in it's a change in resources. It's a reallocation of okay. resources. Um, there are simply fewer bodies now to do the job. Uh huh. And you have, and we now, as a consequence, have to decide what the best allocation of those bodies is. Is it me sitting in a, is it a reporter sitting in a Camp Hill Borough Council meeting for three hours on a Wednesday night, or is that person and the hours that we're going to pay him best used someplace else? And you know, unfortunately, for most news organizations, there's there's that movement away from that kind of ground-level local journalism, which is what I came up in, quite frankly, as a, as a young reporter. Um, Dave Barry has this great line that most journalists start out their careers covering long, dull, boring municipal meetings, some of which are still going on to this day. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, that's where you learn to do the job. That's where yeah. you learn, you know, and I'm last the other night with the Chick-fil-A thing reminding me that local government is still the area of government that touches people's lives the most yep. directly. And we abrogate some responsibility by not covering that stuff as enthusiastically or pa as passionately as we should. And conversely, when you and I know that when the eyes come off public officials, that's oh, yeah. when hands start going into cookie jars, <laughs> that's when people decide they can meet without a quorum or they can violate the sunshine law or whatever. And so it's this trickle-down thing. And I, you know, I wish to God that it was still 1995. We had a billion people to throw at stuff, but it's just not where... The businesses anymore, unfortunately. So where where do you see it going? I mean, what 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 do you see? Uh, do you think that things have leveled out for uh, kind of the the media consumption and how? I mean, obviously, 
we've got papers all across the country that have either gotten rid of uh, their print or significantly reduced that. Yeah, I mean, so I, I write this nationally syndicated column that appears in about three, 400 newspapers nationwide every week. And the papers it most often appears in are these small town dailies. Mm-hmm. Where that where they're doing the city council coverage, where they're doing the you know the 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 zoning stuff or or you know the local schools or whatever, so I mean I still think there's that's still out there mm-hmm. because I see it mm-hmm. when I get my tear sheets, and um, and I've heard a lot of those those small town papers are actually doing well because well. yeah people care about yeah, that stuff right and they really 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 do, I mean some of the bigger players like us, you know we may have to seed the ground. Mm-hmm. And the consumption may become more bifurcated, but there is no doubt in my mind that more and more consumption is migrating online. I see it in our own metrics. I mean, we can literally check second to second to second to see who's on PenLive, what they're reading, what they're consuming, what stories are doing well, what stories aren't doing well, so that we can tailor content accordingly to make sure that people are still consuming the kind of news that they appear to want. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I love being able to say to people, well, when they when they break, when they bust on us for saying you're not you know you no longer do serious news. I hate the news because you don't do any serious news. I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? The number one story on our site yesterday was a guy, was about a guy being eaten by a boa constrictor. So please don't <laughs> tell me. You know, it's 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 really funny. Well, so let, let's move into looking forward. Yes. Uh, to uh, Governor <coughs> Wolf's um, uh, second term. Yeah. And uh, with Republicans still uh, solidly in control of both the House. Uh, and the Senate, yeah. and you could say uh, probably more conservative bodies, despite fewer numbers, uh, given the uh, the loss of particular members of both mm-hmm. the House uh, and the Senate. Um, do you think uh, we're going to uh, see? Uh, well, look, I think we probably had about four different versions of Tom Wolf. Right, 2015 was uh, uber liberal uh, Tom Wolf with his four and a half billion dollar tax increase to where. At the end, he was, uh, you know, finally signed a budget. Uh, what, what, which Tom Wolf uh, do you think we're going to see over the next four years? I, I ran into Brian Cutler in New York, the incoming House Majority Leader uh-huh. in the Pennsylvania Society Weekend um, in December, and he he said to me that he hopes he that he hopes they get year three and four, Tom Wolf, <laughs> rather and not, than one and, not, and two, not yes. year one and two, Tom Wolf. And I think I do think there's something, I do think there's something to it. Um, you know, you and I both know that every governor has. A learning curve. Mm-hmm. They come in thinking they can do whatever they want to do, and then they realize that's the irresistible force that hits the immovable object. Because just because of the way the legislative culture is, these guys know that they're going to outlast whoever's in the big chair, and they try to exercise their prerogatives as much as they can. I mean, I think the governor got to a fairly decent working relationship with some members, some Republican members of the legislature by the end of his first term. I mean, he could he could talk to Dave Reed the now former House Majority Leader. Um, he could talk to some members of the Republican Senate majority as well and try to reach accommodation with them. Um, you know, the governor trounced Scott Wagner um, in the 2016 general, so it's possible they may be feeling their oats um, a little bit and may try to push for a severance tax again or higher minimum wage or any of the other stuff that nobody on your team seems to like. Um, <laughs> But I also think that it's, we're now going to be going into what is going to be an admittedly difficult budget season as well. Um, because, you know, they passed a budget fairly early on mm-hmm. last – it's going to be last year by the time you hear this, yeah. this year. Um, so they could all, everyone could get out of town and go home and campaign. But 
you know, and they're looking at uh, their, you know, the independent fiscal office. Well, looks at like one point seven, one point five, yeah. one point seven yeah. million dollars yeah. in, in deficit. And, Not and jump a, change. No, and a lot of that predicated on the fact that they borrowed against the proceeds of the tobacco settlement yeah. two budgets ago to help balance the books. There are still more one-time fixes in the fiscal 2017-18 budget that won't be in place for fiscal. 19, fiscal 1920 yeah. yeah. that will have to be addressed. Right. Um, so they're going to be coming up on a really contentious well, but budget slate, it, and, there, and there will be holes that have to be filled. And you know, as you and I both know you can only cut so much or wring out so many efficiencies before you have to start looking for money someplace. So I'm going to be really curious to see how that comes down. Yeah, and and it seemed though that uh, the governor's uh, mid-year budget briefing, something they do every December, yeah. that he seemed to think, oh, we're not going to have to raise any taxes, other than the severance tax, of course. Because well, I, yeah. I think they asked, Randy Albright is retiring, yes, they actually yeah. asked him about that, and he kind of danced a little bit when they talked about not, I think the idea of any broad-based tax increase, that's yeah. that's gone. He's not coming back that, for the sales with the IT, yeah, that, That's yeah. off the table. But smaller fees and, and that stuff, that kind of stuff around the edges of recurring revenue, you might see them take a run at that. I don't, I mean, I don't know what else is out there, but you see them take a run at that. Well, what do you think about uh, the Republican-led uh, House and Senate? Does uh, much change with, really, I think you only have uh, Brian Cutler coming into that, you yeah, know, at I, that bargaining I mean, I table? Think, I think you're right, though. I mean, they're going to be coming in, they're going to be coming in with majorities, but they're going to be coming in with smaller and more conservative majorities. Brian Cutler's a nice guy. He's a very thoughtful guy. He is, but he is deeply conservative. Mm-hmm. But I also think he's pragmatic, so that may make a difference. Um, Mike Terzai is deeply conservative and not is inclined to compromise, say, as Mr. Cutler is yeah, or but Dave neither, Reed was. Neither the Senate nor the House uh, have to placate uh, as many Southeast Republicans who would be inclined to vote for, say, the severance well, they all, tax they all, they, I mean, wage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they also happen to have that luxury. Yeah. Um, so I, I'll, it's going to be really, it's going to be a really fascinating dynamic. It really is. Do you think uh, we'll, we'll have uh, a budget on time uh, and signed by this governor? You listeners can't see me, but I'm shaking my head. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, you shook that really quick, John. It's, <laughs> I, we, you know, I was just doing the Terry Madonna show the other day, and we were talking about this, and I, it's probably going to run long. Okay. I think Wolf, I, I would hope that Wolf will sign whatever product gets onto his desk. I mean, you know, Scott Wagner's like tried to paint that as a great moral failing of Tom Wolf. And, like, apart from you and me and, like, five other people, no one cares if the governor signs a budget <laughs> right, or not. Right, It's You know, but it's, it's, a, it's a symbolic act. It's nice. But, you know, who knows what's going to happen. What, do you think uh, Tom Wolf has any aspirations, like, uh, you know, nationally? Because Pennsylvania, of course, being a critical state, if, if Pennsylvania... Just, yeah. They were just talking about him for Veep a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Yeah. That would be fascinating in 20 to see who bubbles up for Veep. Um you know, he's certainly got the profile. Does he run with Bob Casey? Is that the, the oh, Casey? God uh, help us all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think somebody nailed it. Like, what, a middle-aged pro-life white guy at the top of the Democratic ticket in 2020? Well, yeah, I, that'll happen. Yeah, you, you get some dispute on whether he's actually pro-life. but uh, well, yeah, he's opposed to abortion. He's opposed to abortion. <laughs> so so um, what about uh, rising stars? Who do you see? Who should we be keeping our eye on? Of course, Brian Cutler moving into a new role yeah. uh, for himself. Everybody else, not many uh, deck chairs shifting. No. Um, I think the House Democrats uh, certainly shook things up quite a bit. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, had, you, had, some... you had some changes in the, in the House Democratic leadership. It is uh, slightly less crusty white dude than it used to be. You had um, <laughs> Jordan Harris of Philadelphia moving in as whip, which kind of made PSA a little bit bonkers because he's spoken favorably about choices, That's which right. I know are near and dear to your heart. 
um, Leanne Kruger Branicki from Delaware County, who is going to make a run for whip, but she dropped down to like caucus administrator and is now maybe going to run the House Democrats campaign arm. Um, in Which 20, will be interesting, certainly. Well, I, mean, yeah. she, she was, I mean, she raised a lot of money for mm-hmm. the Democrats re-elect um, this last cycle. So that actually maybe the might be the end up being the best place for her. I'll be watching her. Um, yeah, what, about, what about some of these, uh, you know, the so-called socialists, uh, those that beat, uh, you know, the Costas? Yeah, uh, that I mean, ran there's is, Summer, yeah. Lee out there, yeah. Summer Lee out there out west and the other woman whose name escapes me. Uh, at the, Sarah Inamorado, there yes, you go, thank out you. west, um, who were DSA uh, endorsed. You've got Liz Fiedler down in Philly, who's also DSA endorsed, and somebody else whose name eludes me, another woman whose name eludes me at the moment coming into the house. Um, yeah, so what kind of impact do you I, see I, that I, having? Uh, that's going to be really interesting because you have more, you, you have a much more progressive House, Democrat, House Democratic Caucus overall, and um, a lieutenant governor who is pretty and, sympathetic. And I'm going to get there in a minute. Okay, um, you have a pretty more progressive Democratic House Caucus, and while they might may not have a voice in leadership, they have shown that they are unafraid of making themselves making their presence felt. So I'll be curious to see what impact they have on programs and initiatives. Um, over there, yeah. I mean, John Fetterman, he's like he's as close as we've got to a rock star <laughs> right now, right? Um, you know, it, and putting aside like the lame cliche stuff, will he wear a tie? Do it? You know, I mean, what I really want to see, lieutenant governors only have as much power as governors are willing to allocate to them. Mm-hmm. So, how does Tom Wolf decide what is my most advantageous use of John Fetterman? He came from Braddock, Pennsylvania, a coal town, a steel town, rather, excuse me, in Allegheny County, and used sort of his force of personality and leveraged, let's face it, a position that doesn't have a lot of clout, borough mayor, to become a cheerleader and an unrelenting advocate for this town. Does he put him in in charge of kind of some sort of small cities, aging borough thing where he can take those same muscles and kind of encourage economic development? Does does he he put him in charge of like some sort of opioid thing? Because he knows a lot about that, too. And, and I guess, you know, he hasn't been uh, bashful about saying he'd like to run for a different office. Yes. Uh, as in U.S. Senate, maybe against Pat Toomey uh, in 22. Yes. Um, so uh, I guess. And, and, which is uh, counter sort of to the LG's office, which is typically where political ambitions go, go to, to die. die. <laughs> Let's not put too fine a point on it. Well, so, so um, anything else that we ought to be paying attention to that you think uh, could be uh, hot button issues. I, I know redistricting <coughs> just hasn't died, but it doesn't seem to be really going anywhere. Well, I mean, we're going to be going into another census cycle here in 20. 20 yep. Another round of legislative redistricting, another round of congressional redistricting. We have that Supreme Court imposed map. The state will be losing a seat in the next congressional redraw, I think. Moving because, to Texas, yes, yeah, of course, because, where of course, all the jobs yes. are going, right? Um <laughs> So it'd be interesting. I mean, it'd be really interesting to see how those two processes play out. Um, you know, you hear talk, you have talked about statute. Mike Terzai was talking about statutory changes to the uh, the legislative reapportionment mm-hmm. process. So I mean, I'd be curious to see what happens. I, you know, I get emails and op-eds from the folks at Fair District PA from David Thornburg at, at Draw the Lines, who remain very much you know who very much engaged in this. And you have bigger issues too, Matt, because we're going to be going to another presidential cycle of voter security of of, right. of election potential cases of election fraud there's that ongoing debate over making counties buy new voting machines with visible paper trails I mean that still remains an issue that's very much um, 
very much in dispute. So I'll be curious to see the way that sort of plays out as well. Well, John, so uh, as we wrap up here, uh, tell me about when we came in to yes. the coffee shop here, I saw you gravitate towards the vinyl. Yeah. And I know as one of your you know, Twitter descriptions is that you're a, a vinyl phobe or, a, you know, junkie. fanatic junkie. junkie. Yes. What, what, explain that. Well, so I've been playing. And for, and for the youngins out there, what is vinyl? Uh, the, the kids, the kids, no, they buy more vinyl than we I know, do. I'm hearing that. Um, no, so I've been playing music for 30 years. Um, I started out playing bass in my high school jazz ensemble. I played tenor sax and band. And I've been playing in rock bands and touring bands for all of my life. You'll find me playing uh, huh. on weekends with this band in, from Hershey called The April Skies. Um, music's a part of my life. Music is, uh, you know, records are a part of my life. I have a huge sprawling collection at home and I'm always looking and I've had before we leave little amps some may be coming home uh, some may be coming home with me it's uh have you always had that so you never gave it up or is this something no, that I, because of the resurgence no of? I mean I've always been, I've always bought records okay I have a I, uh, I had to build new shelves at my home uh, <laughs> to accommodate my to my accommodate my collection it's just something that's always been you know, it's what keeps me sane. That running and cooking in my kids is what keeps me sane. Yeah, we need we all need that in this business of politics. Uh, it's why you've kept your hair and I have not. Uh, <laughs> you figured that out. Yes. Uh, so, John Mysick, hey, I appreciate your uh, taking time to sit down and chat with me. I always appreciate the opportunities to get together with you. Matt, anytime. Thanks. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E.